Welcome to In These Strange Times. This is a new podcast series that is presenting an evolving response to the global pandemic and it's brought to you by Science Gallery at Trinity College Dublin. On January 30th, 2020, the rapid response to coronavirus brought a panel of experts together to discuss the early stages of the virus as it began to spread, but little did we know how much the world would truly change during that time. Through a series of podcasts and activities, In These Strange Times aims to showcase ways in which humans have responded to the virus. Each week, I'll chat to two experts from areas of science, technology, art, design, healthcare, and innovation related to COVID-19. Halfway through each episode, artist and designer Lucas Garvey will present the future cast, providing a speculative window into the future of each topic. So over the next 10 weeks, there'll be plenty of opportunities for you to get involved. So keep your eye on the Science Gallery's website and the social media to find out more. So today I am chatting to Neve Donnelly and Colin Kyo, who have both used innovative technologies to combat the COVID-19 health crisis. So tell me firstly, we'll start off with yourself, Neve. How did you get to where you are today? Um, well, I suppose I actually started out studying mechanical engineering, so not computer science or AI. Um, but I was working in the tech industry for a bit after that, and I was kind of seeing, you know, the advancements that were being made in the field of AI, and I just thought it was so exciting, and and I wanted to learn more. And not only that, I kind of wanted to move my career in that direction. And so I left my job and went back to study to do a master's in UCD um, in AI and machine learning. Yeah. Um, and that really, yeah, that really allowed me to kind of jumpstart my career. Um, wow. Yeah, and I suppose coming out of that, I was a bit as everyone is when they graduate, don't know what to do. <laughs> but I always, yeah, I suppose I always wanted to work in a role that kind of delivered kind of high impact. And um, I had always heard of that phrase, like AI for good and tech for good. And I found that so interesting. And, you know, I really wanted to be a part of that and, you know, use technology to solve social and climate change problems and all of that is very bright eyed coming out of college. <laughs> but one group in particular that were doing really interesting things in that area was a group called Cara Robotics. And they were a research group in Trinity College Dublin. And they were building robots to deploy in nursing homes to be able to, you know, interact with people and try help fight against social isolation and loneliness. And I just thought this was the coolest thing ever and I wanted to be part of it. Um, so I joined them um, just as they were spinning out as a campus company and I joined as a co-founder and to kind of lead the AI and machine learning development um, on the robots. So the first robot I worked on was Stevie the robot um, and he was kind of a social interaction robot to kind of, you know, talk with people and um, be kind of an aid to care workers in nursing homes and senior care facilities. And so that was a really fun role. And then I suppose when the pandemic hit, um, we kind of changed gears a bit, like a lot of people did. And um, we started building a new robot called Violet. Um, and Violet is an ultraviolet um, robot that's used for disinfecting surfaces in hospitals. So yeah, I guess that's where I am now. Wow. And what about yourself, Colin? Mine was very, very similar to Neem's, actually. I started out as a, a car mechanic, working with my father in his little kind of one-man car mechanic business. But 
I, I did that all through my life as I grew up and I developed a love for machinery and fixing things and problem solving. So like Neve went and studied mechanical engineering um, at UCD and then got involved in R&D and research projects. So I'd worked as a research engineer for a good couple of years out of UCD, working on anything and everything from renewable energy, um, product design, automotive technologies, that sort of thing. So I've worked in that field for about the last 10 years or so. Over that time, done a master's in renewable energy and a PhD in advanced innovation systems. And when it came to COVID, it was an accident. I had started a non-profit a few years ago that did 3D printing of medical equipment in developing regions. So we would send, um, via Rapid Foundation is what it's called, we would send 3D printers to developing regions around the world, teach the people how to use them to solve their own kind of life and local problems. So when COVID hit, having run seven or eight projects overseas in developing regions, never having met anyone, running everything remotely, it meant I was uniquely placed to understand these global response projects and projects that apply technology to solve complicated problems. I am also then terrible for difficult problems. I love chasing difficult problems. The harder the problem, the more enjoyable it is when you try and actually solve it in the end. So a problem that shuts down the whole world is one of the biggest problems that we were facing at the time. So via WhatsApp and Twitter, we ended up setting up an open source ventilator group that went from three people to 6,000 people in about four days. And we ran for about six or seven months in total developing solutions, hardware, software, and even social programs just designed to help kind of minimize the burden of COVID on healthcare society and things like that. Wow. Wow. Um, so you both swiftly responded to the pandemic with the introduction of violet, ultraviolet technology, Neve, and open source ventilator, Colin. Uh, but what was it like trying to integrate a new technology into a normal healthcare setting? And what was the uptake like from the health service? Um, I guess we'll start off with yourself, Colin. It was complicated. I would imagine yeah. our answers will be very, very similar. It was difficult. You know, it was the healthcare industry is very highly regulated. It's very traditional. It's very structured. And it is that way for a reason. You know, it's that way to keep people safe and to make sure the highest priority standards are kept, you know, are, are, are maintained for safety, patient safety and like citizen safety. Now, that sort of rigidity and structure does not lend itself freely to responding rapidly to anything. So, yeah, you know, yeah. projects like ours, projects like Acara, projects like Violet, projects like anything that started quickly to respond to COVID, it clashed with the traditional slow pace of healthcare systems. They tried their best, in all honesty. They're big burdens and beasts that are hard to move quickly, but they tried to adapt. It was complicated. It was like trying to, you know, add something brand new to a business that's been running for a hundred years. It was complicated. Now, one of the things that we had to focus on, and I'm sure every pro focus problem project had to focus on, was making sure we held up those same healthcare standards and safety standards, but just responding in a much quicker way. So we got lots of support from organizations like the HSE, the World Health Organization, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I think we were working with every healthcare provider in the world at one stage. They were aware that they needed to react quickly and that we were reacting quickly. But they were then helping us externally make sure everything was safe. Everything was done in a medically like safe and secure manner. 
So it was a nearly a balancing act. It was a kind of quick, fast, ragtag bunch of people on our end trying to integrate with a big, burdensome, rigid healthcare system. So it had its ups and downs. You know, there were lots of successes. There were lots of problems. But for me in particular, we know how to interact and react now. So hopefully we won't need to do it again. But I think all of us know we will at some stage that when that happens, we at least now know how that interaction works and what we can do again together to speed up that whole process. Mm, for sure. And what about yourself, Neve? Yeah, it was definitely the same for us at the beginning. So we were actually dealing with infection control um, at first in hospitals. And as they should be, they are very specific about how cleaning is done in hospitals. And we were like, there's this new UV cleaning robot that we have. And it's not, it hadn't been used in hospitals in Ireland yet, really. Um, um, we were dealing at the time with the School of Microbiology in Trinity, and they were telling us UV cleaning is the way to go. This is the new kind of way, because before they were using chemicals where they would have to shut down a hospital room for about an hour release these chemicals into the room to clean it and no one could go in and out for an hour and that was really killing absolutely killing capacity in places like radiology like when you think about scan times they're used to doing scans every 15 minutes and so you know the people we were dealing with were saying you know the people in the school of microbiology were like uv is the way past this and then infection control were really unsure about it um but i suppose you know, when it started to become a little more normal, like there was kind of UV cleaning robots in China and more and more, there was kind of a ramp up and it was more normal to have them used. Then it became a little bit easier. And similarly to Colin, you know, the HSE uh, team in particular called the Digital Transformation Team there were really supportive in helping us get a proof of concept into a hospital to test and things do move quite slow. You know, there's a lot of kind of red tape around things and but um, we eventually kind of got past those barriers a bit and we're testing in hospitals. And that's just the point that we wanted to be at. Um, but it was a bit of a struggle to get there um, at first, but then kind of things ramped up after. Wow. And uh, Colin, what was the purpose of making the OS ventilator open source? Can you see this as like the beginning of something more affordable and accessible for healthcare solutions? Definitely. So at the beginning, we didn't intend to make it open source. We didn't intend to do anything. When the project started, we just intended to build a ventilator. So, you know, in March 2020, it was all of the world cared about was getting access to ventilators. And thankfully, as time went on, it became clear we didn't need as many as expected and it wasn't as bad as we wanted. But at that stage, it's all anyone wanted. So we were developing ventilator systems, cheaper, more reliable, but we were developing within healthcare regulations and standards, which was great. But we had a problem of how do we get them out there? We were only volunteers operating online. Now, we never raised any money. It was all kind of nonprofit. We could have raised tens of millions of euros if we wanted to. We were offered it, but we didn't want to do that. Uh, we decided the way in which we could distribute these ventilators as quickly as possible was to just make them open source, just share them. You know, if it was just up to us manufacturing them, we'd be limited by how many we could make due to the facilities or the finances that we have. Whereas if we finalize the plans and open source it to the world, thousands of people and companies and organizations could start manufacturing these and we could supply them if they were required. And like that idea was embraced by 
some companies that had never operated in open source before. So, you know, Ford Motors in uh, Detroit was one of our main contributors. We were onto them two or three times a week, developing in tangent with them, you know, developing open source solutions. PCH International, companies like Amazon and Google and even Tesla and Virgin Hyperloop, all of these companies were working together in an open source manner just to get one of these across the line safely so they could be there if we needed them. And thankfully, as I say, they were not needed. But all of that work and all of the dynamic of working open source between ad hoc groups, companies, governments, institutions, universities, that's all been proven to work. And it's been proven to work extremely well over the course of this pandemic. So if it happens again, and if other institutions are like, you know, if there are other cases in which it's required, we know now how it works. So we know how the interactions work and hopefully we'll be better placed to kind of do it again. So we're hoping that idea of open source integration will be integrated into the health service, you know, into Irish health services and other health services that can they can be a little bit more open and recognize that these new innovations can come from places that they might not expect. And if they then support the teams in bringing them into their structures, everything will run much, much smoother. The problem will be solved and most of the things they're afraid of will disappear. Yeah, I was going to say that. That's amazing, though. What a great hopeful change for the future that people will have more. I mean, it's um, working together. I mean, who would have thought? <laughs> like, I think we always kind of forget that it's always better when it's a collaborative process rather than just a solo project. Um, and Colin, in one of the Science Galleries Dublin's more recent exhibitions, Plastic, 3D printed organisms by Axial 3D showed the revolutionary benefits of using plastic and 3D printing in healthcare. So what other innovations have occurred from the use of 3D printing? There is an awful lot of them. The, the, the one everyone is aware of is healthcare, as you mentioned. So things like my foundation 3D prints prosthetics. We can make a prosthetic for 10 or 15 euros in a few hours versus tens of thousands previously. Now, this 3D printing has integrated even kind of semi-medical fields. So anyone that has Invisalign braces, they are nearly seeing every single one of them is 3D printed now. You know, it's they Invisalign are the largest 3D printer in the world. They manufacture more objects using 3D printer compared to anyone else. So it started in healthcare and now it's kind of dripping down into other areas and fields from that. So, you know, cosmetics, things like that. Uh, custom products are coming online. I have some custom fitted tools that are 3D printed to fit my hands. They have use in the general public and in the field of kind of disability. And then the area of like, you know, the, the aesthetic customization, your things and products you buy in the future. I, th I have, I'm of the opinion that they will be 3D printed to your own specifications. Companies like Nike and Adidas are using 3D printing systems to make the soles of their shoes. You know, there's some high-end fashion brands using it to make custom handbags and custom accessories. So this idea of using plastic-based 3D printing to manufacture anything allows the things we're going to buy in the future to be customized exactly to our designs. So it's kind of anything and everything, basically, anything that needs to fit you as a person, either biologically or even taste and style-wise, is going to be 3D printed in the, in the kind of short to medium term in the future. Next up is the future cast with Lucas Garvey. Join us for part two, where we'll be chatting about the ethical implications of outsourcing AI over humans.
Welcome to the Governmental Containment Protection Regenerative Facility. You have been admitted here because you've contracted the Bex T4 virus. At this point, you are probably feeling confused, lethargic, and perhaps even some physical pain in the rectal area. These are common side effects of our powerful suppository tranquilizer. You may be asking yourself, what is the facility? The facility is specifically designed to help people who have contracted contagious diseases recover in the most comfortable and effective manner possible whilst keeping others safe. Here at the facility, there are currently 221,456 and two guests, 80 of which will share your containment block. You will of course neither hear nor see any guests due to strict quarantine regulations. Now, let's talk about your treatment plan for the Bex T4 virus. It is paramount that during your recovery, you maintain a healthy body and mind. Your daily itinerary will consist of a range of light physical activity, homeopathy, herbal medicines, cognitive training, visualization exercises, medication, meditation, and highly nutritious meals. This ensures that by the time you leave, your health is in the utmost of excellent condition. Frequently asked questions. How did I get here? Our sophisticated sensory system located in public spaces detected a fluctuation in your antibody numbers, which is a key characteristic of when one becomes infected with the Bex T4 virus. Our tactical public safety quarantine team gently immobilized you with some heavy anal tranquilizers. You were then transported immediately to the facility. FAQ 2 What's that noise? You may notice a gentle electronic hum throughout your stay. This is the air purifier. This, coupled with the provided antiviral, antimicrobial bedding and clothing help avoid self-contamination and reinfection. FAQ 3 When will I be able to leave? The Bex T4 virus, when treated effectively, will only stay present in the body for four to six weeks. After you have tested negative for any contagious diseases, you can go back to your normal life. FAQ 4 Can I see my friends and family? The facility has visiting times twice a week. These are carried out within our enclosed visitor capsules where you will be able to speak and see your visitors behind a sheet of glass. FAQ 5 How much will my treatment cost? Your treatment is in the public's and therefore the government's best interest and so is paid for in full by the governmental health services. FAQ 6 Will my disease have any long-term symptoms post-recovery? Luckily, in your case, the Bex T4 virus has not been known to have any lasting side effects after full recovery. This is not to say that symptoms may not develop after prolonged periods of time. XT4 is still a relatively new virus and long-term side effects are still unknown. FAQ 7 Will I still be able to work while in the facility? In order to recover effectively, you will not be working for the duration of your stay within the facility. Your employer has already been notified and your stay will be calculated into your annual sick leave. FAQ 8 Why do I feel weird? 
You have been dosed with an extremely potent, specially formulated cocktail of antibodies, hormones, and vitamins to boost your immune system and kickstart the recovery process. Included in this cocktail are specially designed cutting-edge anal nanobots which bind to the BEXT4 virus and inhibit it from causing any irreversible damage. One side effect of these anal nanobots is that you will feel funny. This will wear off within a number of days. FAQ 9 why is there a lizard here? Here at the facility, we believe that companionship and providing a connection with nature is integral to maintaining a healthy mind and accelerating the recovery process. In your room, you will have a bearded dragon staying with you. It is our intention that you form an affectionate bond. Luckily, reptiles are biologically immune to the Bex T4 virus. We also have a dedicated garden on our campus with over 300 gazillion different species of plant. You will have a daily dedicated appointment to take advantage of this amazing asset. If you have any further questions, please do not hesitate to push the assistance button located directly under your pillow. One of the facility team members will be happy to answer any queries you may have. Enjoy your stay at the Governmental Containment Protection Regenerative Facility and get well soon. So, Neve, you're participating in a robot in residence program between the Science Gallery Dublin and the Goeth Institute. And I've heard that the project is in its infancy, but what does it exactly consist of? Tell me. Um, so this is a really interesting project. Um, so they basically, they pair up an artist and a coder together and they have to together team up and teach a little robot a new skill. Um, so the robot that we're using is a little robot called Now and it's really small. It's about 40 to 50 centimeters tall and has arms and legs and a little cute face. <laughs> uh, so this robot has been traveling around Europe to different countries. So I think it's been in Italy and Germany and Scotland and each country it visits the there's a coder and artist team that teach it a new skill and um, so now the now robot arrived in Dublin last week so myself wow. and yeah it's really exciting so myself and an Irish artist called David Beatty are um you know we've just got our hands on the robot now. So we're kind of trying to figure out what, what skill to teach it. Um, and it's really fun because actually all the other skills that it's learnt in the different countries are still kind of programmed into it so we can play them. So it's oh, learnt, wow. yeah, it's really funny. It's learnt like how to box, um, how to dance, how to vogue, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. uh, like how to speak different languages. And yeah, it's really, really exciting. And um, well, we're, it ends in September and hopefully we're, we're we're planning to go to Germany to you know meet and everyone talk about you know the different skills but it's probably be virtual but um yeah I'm really looking forward to that and you know meeting up with everyone but it's a really great project. So should robots be reserved for tasks like disinfection and transport in healthcare rather than direct human care and are we sure that this is the best path to take in the future? Neve, I'll start off with you. Um, I guess you can never replace human care. We're just not going to be able to do that. Well, I don't believe we will. Um, all we can do is, you know, provide tools to allow people to give better human care. And I've actually spent a lot of time in care facilities, in nursing homes, you know, watching what's going on, 
And, you know, these people are so overworked, as I said before, and we really need to kind of give them the proper tools to be able to do their jobs correctly. And, you know, I think just looking at things like disinfection or transport, you know, we're missing out there. Um, A lot of like the illnesses, people are living so much longer now. A lot of the illnesses that we're seeing, they're not actually physical, they're more cognitive. And so we have to be a bit more imaginative with the technology that we're using um, and not just, you know, box it off and say, we'll, we'll only use robots in this section. I think we really need to, you know, be open-minded as to where we can use it. Mm-hmm. And what about yourself, Colin? What do you think? Yeah, exactly the same as Nevin. She, she mentioned that, you know, these, these technologies are a tool. You know, they're a tool to help support people. I know an awful lot of people, again, are afraid of, you know, AI is coming, it will replace jobs and everything. These solutions, be it AI, robotics, 3D printing, whatever it is, they're just a tool that we can use. So it's the same as a screwdriver or a hammer or whatever. But these tools are significantly older. We've had hammers and screwdrivers for hundreds of years, so we know what to do with them now. VR, robotics, AI, 3D printing are 15 years-ish have been around, so we don't really know what to do with them yet. And kind of like what Neve said is that the, the real good applications will present themselves as time progresses. As we try specific things, we try robotics for disinfection and transport. We'll try them for other things. We'll try AI in healthcare systems. And we'll very quickly find out what they're good at and what they're not good at. But as Neve said, they can never replace the human. You know, an AI system can't replicate creativity. It can't replicate real empathy. It can't replicate that human kind of caring nature that we have. So... Once we use these technologies as a tool to actually allow people to do what they do as people better and just relieve some of the kind of burden on themselves and the systems they work in, I think we'll very quickly find out what the best application for this sort of technology will be. Mm, mm. And I guess outside of a healthcare setting, how do you think technology will aid humanity and society in future? Uh, Like in every way possible in my mind, like so... We've had technology. I think we're at the stage now for the last couple of like probably decades now. It's been technology for the sake of technology. You know, all of our mobile phones get faster for no particular reason. The cameras get higher quality that we don't ever use. You know, it's tech for tech's sake. But for the last while, there's been a shift and it's into tech for good and tech for humanity. How can we use this technology we created to make the world we live in a better place? You know, so that technology will be pointed to any and all areas and aspects of our daily lives. At the minute, we can see it with COVID. The whole world is on a work from home experiment, you know, and like there's lots of that that will never change. You know, we will keep the elements that work and we'll progress into the future. Things like climate change are going to be huge and technology is one of the only ways we're going to be able to solve that. So I think now technology has bedded itself in our daily lives. We now have to start looking at how we can use it to solve some of these bigger problems we all face on a kind of daily basis and solve the real particular kind of issues we face. And you never really know what you're going to do. I had I had a project in Uganda and I went looking for an iPhone in a rural village of 100 people in Uganda. And I like erroneously thought I would have trouble finding one. And I had 60 iPhones in a population of 100 people. So distribution of technology and then had the connectedness of them all I think it's going to give us this huge tool to connect everyone nearly immediately to share information and solve these problems. So like that fascinates me about technology. So I'll try and use it anyway to for any and all applications, whether they work or they don't, we'll find out about the line. 
So thank you both for joining me today. It's been so fascinating to get a look into both of your worlds and your minds. It's been really, really interesting. So thank you and well done for what both of you guys are up to at the moment. Uh, listeners, you can right now go and listen to episodes one and two, which are available to listen to now. And episode three will actually be out in two weeks time. Thank you for listening to this podcast by Science Gallery at Trinity College Dublin, which is part of the Science Gallery International Network. We are kindly supported by Accenture, Icon and Intel Ireland. We also receive government support from the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gwaltocht, Sport and Media and Science Foundation Ireland. Find out more at dublin.sciencegallery.com.